You're listening to the From the Hack Curling Podcast, part of the Curling News and Sports Illustrated Partnership. Hi everyone, my name is Frank Rock and welcome to the brand new season of the From the Hack Curling Podcast. We start off this new season and new Olympic cycle with part one of our season preview with guest David Murdoch of British Curling, three-time reigning Scottish champion Skip Kerry Anderson, and four-time Briar, four-time world champion Glenn Howard. Hello everyone, as mentioned in the intro, this is the start of a new season of the From the Hack podcast, our ninth season of covering the sport of curling. Over the years, we've spoken with over 30 Olympic medalists, over 70 world champions, along with hundreds of curlers, coaches, and administrators from 17 curling nations. I am pumped for the upcoming season, which will include a blend of our usual interview format, along with a few special episodes where we will focus on one specific topic. More to come on that in the next few weeks. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy part one of our season preview. My first guest this season is David Murdoch of British Curling, who joined me to discuss the sudden retirement of Olympic champion Eve Muirhead. We also look back on what was an exciting end to the last Olympic cycle for British Curling, and we take a look at some of the new Scottish lineups to start the 2022-23 curling season. David, we are recording this interview some 24 hours after Eve Muirhead announced that she was retiring from competitive curling less than a year after winning an Olympic gold medal with her women's team and also after winning the World Mixed Doubles Championship with Bobby Lamy. I'm sure you knew Eve's decision before the curling world found out. What was your reaction when you first heard the news? Yeah, well, it's big news, really, isn't it? You know, Eve's, uh, Eve's career has been absolutely fascinating and, and you know, one of the greatest curlers of of all time and when you see what she's what she's achieved and and such a long career too and you know there was always going to be a discussion with Eve about where we are now and you know that's been four Olympic cycles uh what is the future and and we had a little bit of discussion tried not to get into it too much pre-Beijing had a little bit after and you know we were at mixed doubles and things but you know, there's a lot to consider. You know, she just achieved her lifelong dream to become an Olympic champion, then went on to to put the ice on the top of the cake with a, a world mixed doubles uh, gold medal, which she'd never achieved. So there was probably a lot for Eve to think about, get her head around. Um, at the same time, there were so many amazing things probably happening in her life with what comes with an Olympic gold medal. You know, you get invited to a lot of incredible things and award ceremonies and, and um, you know, new experiences. And so probably just through that time, I think Eve just was thinking about the future. What does it hold? What does she now want to achieve? And that's, that's, what's, that's what life's about, really, isn't it? You know, what, what do we want to achieve in our life? And and I think it just took a little bit of time for Eve to think, do you know what? I've uh, I've been there, done it, got the T-shirt. I could still continue, obviously, in, in her mind. That's the way she would think. And, uh, and of course, she can. But I think just uh, Eve's personality is she gives absolutely everything into what she does and, and felt that uh, that's maybe not the case now. There's other things that she wants to explore. Um, and I'm sure she'll have great success in whatever she does. David, there's a lot of people uh, in North America, at least, who would argue that an athlete should uh, strike while the iron is hot, as it were. Uh, in other words, an athlete will receive greater opportunities both on the field of play or on the ice, in this case, and in endorsements following a high visibility victory, such as a gold medal at the Olympics, especially in a sport like curling, which does not have a high profile in most countries, except during and immediately following the Olympics. Is it similar in Great Britain? Did Eve Muirhead leave a lot of money on the table, as it were, by retiring? so quickly after her greatest triumph? I think there's always been a difficulty for teams out with Canada to get a lot of like sponsorship and things to follow that up with. Um, you know, the tour is predominantly based in Canada in terms of television exposure. Um, so I think teams in, in Europe especially have found it difficult to to really get a lot of endorsements because of that. You certainly see a lot more of that in, you know, with the Canadian teams. So in some ways, the team is in a curling team getting more opportunities because, say, an Olympic medal, I'm not sure that's the case. I think you get a little bit more help. You could find some things to help work, but not anything that's life-changing in some ways, Frank. So in some ways, there's more opportunities out with curling, and I think that's maybe where 
Eve's exploring about um, some of the things, you know, whether it's job-wise, appearance-wise, speaking-wise, and, and I'm sure she'll be great in any one of those. And, and I think that's the route that she would really like to explore. And and hopefully uh, she's got a few things that will just uh, send her in a direction, and I'm sure she, she'll figure out where she wants to go. David, there's already talk among uh, curling insiders uh, that this might be uh, much more of a break for uh, Eve rather than uh, an actual retirement from the sport of curling. As you mentioned, Eve's been at it for some 20 years now and she's battled injuries over the last uh, cycle. Do you believe that she's actually retired for good or do you think that Eve might uh, come back to competitive curling when she's had a chance to rest, recover and spent a couple of years, uh, you know, getting to enjoy life without having to deal with the wear and tear that comes from not only curling a lot of events uh, each season, but also traveling across uh, the uh, the Atlantic quite a few times a year to uh, play, you know, so many slams and so many other events in Canada and also some events in uh, Asia. Well, you know, as as head coach of the, the program right now, I sure hope so. <laughs> she's uh, she's going to be really, you know, dearly missed here. She's, um, you know, she's been a good role model. Um, she's always delivered on the world stage, been reliable to go any championship and win medals and, and get to events. Um, so, you know, who knows? I think in her mind just now, she want, she's off to explore things. That's full retirement. Will she come back? I, I would, I would, I would like to think she could. Of course, she could. She's she's skilled enough to do so and young enough to do so. Uh, the, the door is fully open for her um, during that period, um, but. I doubt it. I think most people, when they head down the retirement route, just you know, they discover that there's there's other things in life, and of course, you're always going to miss the sport, miss miss your teammates, miss traveling the world. That's part and parcel of it. But at the same time, opportunities and and meeting other people and and new things come about, and there's still a love for doing other things. And you know, evil still be around the curling circuit, I'm sure. She's got so many friends and people she would want to still see and and who knows that she might dabble in some sort of curling uh curling work. And so that's that's something that's it'll be close to our heart, I think. David, we've touched on this a little bit already, but can you speak to the wear and tear that traveling overseas multiple times a year to curl competitively can have both physically and mentally on an elite curler? It's something that you surely experienced during your curling career as well. And obviously as coach and as somebody who is very intimately involved with the British curling and the Scottish curling programs, you have a very good sense of the impact that all this travel has on the players, both physically and mentally. Yeah, I think you've summed up a little bit in terms of the amount of travel that's required um you know out with canada there's so many good events over there that you you need to you need to come to canada to play against some of the top teams in the world uh there's way more competition some of the bigger events uh are are held there obviously so there is a lot of yeah there is a lot of travel back and forward i think that's something we manage extremely well in terms of you know, our travel protocol and managing, you know, managing sleep, uh, managing recovery. That's all part of our, some of the detailed planning we do with our support staff here. Um, I think where it's at with curling is curling's changing so much and has changed over the last, you know, 15 years uh, specifically because the Olympic Games has changed everything. Um, to be good at this sport now, to be the best, you've actually to be a very detailed professional athlete and that's something that you know curling's on that journey from being where it was an amateur sport now is becoming a professional sport if you want to be the best you're going to put a lot of hours in you've got to do the types of training that you see in you know mainstream top sports where you know an athlete's body has to be at the peak of its condition that's where curling's going now so I think in terms of longevity in the sport and you do see you know, people going into the 40s, 50s playing, I think that's going to get less and less. And that's the reason behind it, because to make to make it work, to be the best, you're going to have to put in so much effort on a daily basis. And that's different to where Curlin was previously, where that, that probably wasn't the case. You could throw some rocks, do a little bit of gym, uh, do some travel. Now you have to do lots of travel, lots of gym, throw lots of stones be really physically fit, mentally aware, be astute with uh, strategy. Uh, you have to do more now. And because of that, I think you're going to see people step out of the game a little bit earlier. 
Um, you, you're already starting to see that. You know, you, you've seen it with Eve. She's been around since a teenager. You see it with other uh, players around the world starting to do that. Of course, you're going to still see some people in their 40s playing, and, and that's great. Um, but I think that'll become less of the norm. David, you haven't been a guest on a podcast since before the Beijing Olympics where Great Britain won a gold medal in a women's event and a silver in a men's event. What kind of impact did those results have on your program heading into the new cycle? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it, it was obviously a hugely successful campaign for us. We, we always knew we could achieve um, medals. I think that was how we always looked at it. We had great opportunities with... Mixed doubles, women's, men's, with all our uh, were teams there for the three disciplines. Um, going back four years, we had a very clear plan about how we're going to achieve that. What was going to be required to actually be the or be in that medal zone? What was what was capable? What do we need to be looking at in terms of our physicality, our training, competition structure, our planning? All the things that roll into that to, you know, all these details are so important to get it right so you can nail it that week, you know, the, the most important week of, of four years. So, it, you know, from our point of view, the plan was a success and um, our athletes delivered on the on the biggest stage at the right moment and, and credit to them for doing that because there's a huge amount of work goes in behind that. The athletes are doing a lot of work. The staff are doing a lot of work. We're working together to achieve the same goal, and and they smashed it out of the park. And that was just it was just a pleasure to be part of, pleasure to see them, you know, realize their dreams. And and what comes of that is more good things for our program because ultimately uh, the funding that's come that comes towards British curling is through UK Sport, and they fund a number of sports, both summer and winter, um, to achieve. Olympic medals to inspire the nation to encourage more people to be uh, participating in in your sports and uh, so at the end of those four years that's your funding has ended you have to then reapply for well the next four years Milan Cortina and Italy coming up so you know we have to make some really detailed plans about well we've had success how do we get more success or at least get the same success that we've had? What does that look like? What do we need to do to achieve that? Um, so there has to be a, a huge amount of work done and discussions had to make that funding, uh, a, you know, that funding application. And we've been so fortunate to have that authorised. We, we've got six, over 6 million, 6.4 I think million to uh, to put towards this next cycle, and now we have to really put in the fine detail about uh, how we're going to use those funds. It can only be for our elite teams. That's that's what the funding's used for. So there's there's a lot of thought needs to now be put into to managing that. It was recently announced that British Curling would receive six point four million pounds over the next cycle. What kind of impact will that type of funding have not only on the elite program and its athletes, but also on growing the sport in the country, especially after the success Great Britain had at the Olympics in Beijing? Yeah, I think you've always got to look at um, look at the bl- the blueprint. Really, you know, our blueprint um, was a success. So, but that's not to say that you should absolutely stick to what you've done previously. I think it's really important that. You know, we've had an opportunity to stop, review, really dive and really deep dive actually into, well, what worked? What didn't work? What do we think needs to be better? What do the athletes think needs uh, needs to be better? What what can we achieve more of or what's more efficient as well? How do we streamline some um, services or, you know, streamline how we go about things to make it more efficient? So um, that's the process that we've been on. That's what we've been looking at. Um, I wouldn't say we would ever look at making athletes busier. I think we've uh, we've understood the correlation of uh, training, how important that is, and competition schedule. I think that's always a fine balance because you need points, and points get you into events, and that's that's the the more of the challenge to managing curling teams around the world. It's it's the challenge of not knowing how many points you're going to get. That's ultimately from success, but you've got to present opportunities to get those points. So I think we're, we're just exploring some of the, the things that we now need to do. The funding definitely allows us to think about a few things differently. 
um, put more detail into some aspects of our of our program, and we're we're now just um, yeah we're now just look, exploring those and figuring those out. Now, obviously, David, at the end of an Olympic cycle, uh, it usually means an overhaul of most elite curling teams, especially in Canada. Obviously, Eve Muirhead's retirement uh, will force some changes on the women's side in Scotland. But let's start with the men. Have there been any significant lineup changes among your top Scottish teams heading into this season? Yeah, we've, we've had a few changes. Um, Team Mauer are, are absolutely uh, on board. They really want to push on for the next four years again. They're at the top of their game, so why not? Um, Team White, Another really great up and coming team. They they're uh, they're sticking together. They want to push on as well. So we've got two really fantastic teams um, that are uh, in the Grand Slams, and we want to you know see them do battle in some ways. We want to see both of these teams fighting out. Uh, team Patterson have actually had some uh, retirements, so Ross Patterson's, Patterson's decided to step away. He's actually joining our coaching ranks now, so we've uh, got some great continuity from athletes wanting to progress into the coaching ranks, and, and that brings some great skills too. And uh, Duncan Menzies is part of that team. He's he uh, he's uh, exploring some other opportunities. So we've got a little bit of change in, in the teams under uh, Mowat and White, and so uh, Kyle Waddle is going to be skipping that what was the, the remnants of that team. Um, so yeah, there's there's a, there's not too much change with the men's. I'd say so. Then we're we're really strong in that department, and uh, you know we've got James Craig team, World Junior Champions. So you know we're we're really um, we're really thinking about the future, trying to promote youth. So um, so there's some good youngsters coming through and uh, as well. And before moving on to the women's program for this particular cycle, um, David, I want to touch on something you did with the women's program late in the last cycle, which obviously ended up working really well, winning a gold medal at the Olympics. For a while there, you had players from your elite program rotating in and out of different lineups until you found combinations that you believe would gel well together and could be successful and as I just mentioned and as we've discussed throughout this interview it obviously worked really well because Team Muirhead went on to win a gold medal at the Olympics. For a while there you had, um, can you take us back to last season David and talk us through the decision to basically utilize the first part of the season as a tryout for what would eventually be your lineup at the Europeans at the Olympic qualifier and at the Olympics? Yeah, well, where we were actually, you know, off the back of Calgary bubble in 2021, we, you know, we we didn't qualify for direct to the Olympic Games, and and uh, you know, Eve's team there didn't have a best week, and we could see that there was there were some elements of well, will we qualify at the Olympic qualifier in December with this team? Will we not? Uh, we had to, you know, had some really honest and tough conversations both. Um, within the program of staff about thinking about the future of the women's program and also with with the team and uh, where we got to was that we were going to be we we're going to be brave we're going to try something unique but ultimately it was about bringing the best uh, best players together and making a, a team that had a really solid outlook on being together being a really good teammate, being strong, technically excellent, strategically understanding, being on the same page. And we thought, well, we've actually got nothing really to lose. It gives a lot of opportunity to, actually there's nine players. We had, uh, you know, what was the remnants of two teams and we added in Haley Duff as well from the, uh, one of the other teams. So uh, an interesting number. Uh, it took a bit of... Uh, managing in terms of we rotated the team a lot we tried different positions we wanted to see different things we wanted to give people opportunities in different positions showcase themselves show what they were capable of um you know what comes with that sometimes some difficulties around continuity that was that was a little bit difficult but we knew the timeline that we'd set out we explore these scenarios and teams for a set period we would then make a very good decision on a lot of data and a lot of discussion about making that selection and we would select a team that was uh, in our eyes capable of going to the Olympic qualifier and achieving that qualification and and ultimately that's what we did and the athletes were were great and really buying into this concept 
and everyone got their opportunity. Uh, don't get me wrong, every person wanted to be on that seat to the Olympic qualifier and then obviously to the Beijing Games, but um, that's not possible. That's that that's sometimes selection. You know, it's no different to a team being selected to the you know for the FA Cup final in football. You know, there's only so many can get on that team sheet, and uh, the the girls that got selected, obviously, you know, it, they really got a good team dynamic, developed a great bond, um, kept training hard and, and kept pushing on, and we you know ended up winning the Europeans, got to that Olympic qualifier, uh, finishing top there. And then uh, you know the Beijing was just just incredible to be part of, and uh, a great week. Um, you know, didn't didn't win every game, but won the right games. Got ourselves into those uh, playoffs, and and in the playoffs, we we were at our best, and and that really showed the experience um, that was there in the team with with our players, and and really the desire to win. And uh, you know that was that was what we planned for. That's how we were going to do it, and we did. So, and credit to the girls for just uh, performing when it counted. Before we move on from the Olympics, uh, David, I want to ask you about Jennifer Dodds and Bruce Mowat, who did double duty in uh, Beijing, competing in two events each. Now, that's something that's frowned upon in some countries, including Canada, where the belief is that an athlete is better served if they only focus on one event during the Olympics. Now, Jen and Bruce have certainly proven that it's doable, but what are the challenges for athletes to compete in two high-pressure curling events at the Olympics in consecutive weeks? There, There is a number of challenges, but I think it's important to really, like, set out what those are you know the it's a, it's a obviously it's an extended period of time in a you know in a huge a huge championship in olympic games that's the pinnacle of them all so what are what what are the things you've got to manage you've got to manage you know your your mental strength your physical strength um the obviously being away from one team for a period of time to train with the other and then having to rejoin that. So we discussed this at length and, and it was important that we set out that was it possible? We felt it hundred percent was, but we had to really plan for it. And I think if you plan for it and understand what's possible, you, you can live without maybe a player on the team for some training, because if you, if you do it right and you, you make sure that, everything's coordinated well enough that everyone's ready at the right time, that person could slot in pretty easily. And and that, we certainly saw that with, with Bruce and Jane. They had, they had a really good week at the mixed doubles, a couple of shots that we would have, and we would be in the, you know, we would have been in the final. Um, but also at the same time, the things they learned and how comfortable they got with being in the Olympic arena really translated over onto a calmness that came into then the the men's and women's team respectively. So, you know, Bruce and Jen were just, were just they were on it from the first minute of, of their uh, team games. So, you know, the you, when you look at it that way and also where Bruce and Jen were there, you know, they were world champions. It was like, well, why would, why would we restrict them from doing one of both? You know, Bruce was, you know, number one team in the world and the world champion mixed doubles player. Jen, you know, doing well with the Eves team and the world champion mixed doubles player. It's like it would have been hard to take, take them away from that in some ways. And we had other options too. If it wasn't those guys, you know, we saw... Bobby Lamy and Eve Muirhead, just how well they, you know, they performed in mixed doubles as well. So, so we had some great options, and I think when you've got great options, you know, you don't want to hold that back, right? So, I want to go back to the women's program for a moment, to David. With Eve's retirement, what will be your approach with the women's program to start the cycle? Will you be rotating players on one or two different teams, like you did at the end of the last cycle, or will there be one or two set lineups on which your top women's players will compete throughout the season? Yeah, I think our original plan was to, um, you know, as you say, Frank, just try and stabilize things. Um, year in, year one of a quadrennial, and, and you know, when we look at British curling and what we're trying to achieve, that is to win medals in four years' time. So, in in some ways, it's a bit of a a bit of stability. Uh, the way I see it is a bit of development. I think there's an opportunity for all our athletes, and 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 that goes to anyone around the world. Really, you can you can figure some things out in year one. What's working. Find the right teams, the right players. You know, there's no there's no big push to the finish line right now. There's there's a little bit of breathing space, and and that's the way we see it. So, you know, with Eve retiral, we've got an opportunity just to, 
you know, just have a real think about how we're going to factor some of these things in. We're losing someone with immense experience, uh, Vicky Wright um, retiring and, and Millie Smith as well. So, you know, we've had a few few of our experienced players now stepping away. And But at the same time, what comes with that is some great opportunities. And that's what pleases me most about this programme. We've, we have a pyramid here where... You know, we're bring, actively looking at youth. We're bringing them into our curling academy, giving them a lot of time and coaching. And, you know, four years is a long time. So let's just see where we go in this first part and develop and hopefully some things shape and move forward. And I'm sure they will. And, um, you know, hopefully uh, some great successes are, are down the corridor pretty quickly. And finally, David, one of the recurring themes on this podcast when I interview guests that find themselves on the coaching or administrative side of the sport is growth, not only in their individual programs, but growth in the sport internationally. That said, how important do you believe was the mixed doubles gold medal win by the Italian team of Constantini and Mozaner at the Olympics in Beijing, not only because the two of them will now surely play a key role in marketing the next Winter Olympics scheduled for Italy, but also to provide hope to smaller curling nations that Olympic glory is possible. I think it's absolutely brilliant for the sport, to be honest with you. And I think that's exactly what, you know, all curlers and fans were probably hoping for in some ways. You know, uh, don't get me wrong, I would have loved to have had, uh, you know, another medal in Bruce and Jen to get that medal. But at the same time, you know, it's it's really good for the sport. You know, seeing some nations that are away from the, you know, the so-called big, you know, the big nations previously that would always win the events. Uh, it really does open up to any nation now. And and that's, that can only be a good thing. And if that brings more people to the sport, it brings more funding. And, you know, we start to see nations from all over the world getting involved and, and becoming part of these world championships. That's going to be challenging for the, for the, for all the established nations, but it's, it's what we want. We want to grow this sport. We want other countries to take it up. And if mixed doubles is a bit of the catalyst that gives that opportunity, then, you know, all for it, you know, I think it's great. It's, it's a great sport. It's a great discipline. Um, it's going to grow. It's going to get bigger. I think we've got to have a bit of imagination about where we want it to go and how we how we should go about achieving that. So making more opportunities for mixed doubles, and I, I really I really do hope it, it takes off even more. My next guest is three-time Scottish champion and from the Hacks of most frequent guest, Carrie Anderson, who joined me to discuss her team's exceptional first cycle together. And we also look ahead to this season and beyond for Carrie and her teammates. Carrie, as we start a new Olympic cycle in curling, I'm wondering if this past summer has allowed you to reflect on and let's sink in the fact that your team has won three consecutive Scotties championships, which is exceptional considering the fact that you, Val, Shannon and Brianne have only been together as a team for four seasons. Yeah, definitely. We uh, sat down and reflected on um, our last cycle and uh, what a lot of good things came out of it. And we learned a lot as well, um, especially as a team. We learned um, so much at the trials. And um, yeah, it's definitely a, everything's a learning curve. And um, we are definitely excited to uh, to keep going for another four years. I find it interesting that you did not even mention your Scotty's wins in your last response and that you reflected on the Olympic trials and the lessons your team learned there. Obviously, your team wants to win every event they enter or qualify for, whether it's a tour event, a slam, or the Scotties. That said, is it fair to say, though, that your team's primary focus heading into this cycle is to build over the next few seasons so that you are in peak form and hitting on all cylinders in time for the next Olympic trials? Yeah, for sure. We we uh, we talked about all of our Scotties as well, and um, you definitely. Uh, I know for myself that I always think of the um, the things that I didn't succeed in, <laughs> and why, and how can I improve, and what happened. Um, and we've um, had really great uh, Scotties appearances the last three years, and um, um, yeah, we're definitely um, now working towards um, defending our title, but also uh, getting back to those uh, trials. Um, That was our first year in the trials as a team, and um, the three of us have actually never played in it before. So um, 
it was definitely an experience and uh, we'll build off of that. Your team is coming off one of the most successful stretches in Canadian women's curling history, winning three Scotties in a row. However, most of it occurred in the midst of a worldwide pandemic with mostly empty stands. Did you and the team feel like you perhaps got robbed a little bit of the experience of playing in front of a large crowd as Canadian champions, especially since Team Canada is usually the team that gets the second loudest cheers at a Scotties or Briar after the team from the host province or region? Yeah, for sure. We definitely feel like we got robbed there. Um, you uh, you watch back like all the Scotties and when I grew up uh, watching um, that uh, all the fans and the, the crowds always cheering for Team Canada. And yeah, it definitely, uh, um, we didn't get that full on experience, but uh, we still felt uh, very, uh, a lot of support um, through social media and um texts and phone calls and and whatnot so uh definitely we never really got the huge parties like that everyone else uh, has like send-offs and everything but um it uh was for sure challenging times for everyone and uh i'm just super proud of my team for um never backing down and just uh keep uh grinding away through all the tough times that we we've had in the last couple of years so, Kira, the first year of a cycle tends to be fairly chill and experimental for most teams, especially since you often have new lineups and teammates trying to get used to each other. In your case, you have a chance to become the first skip since Colleen Jones to lead a team to four straight Scotties titles. Is it fair to say that the chance to make some history this season and match the accomplishment of a Canadian curling legend might give your team a little more incentive than you might otherwise have in the first year of a new cycle? Yeah, for sure. We, uh, we're striving for that, and we... Uh, we always want to keep getting better and better um, every single year. And um, we uh, are definitely looking at being consistent and um, striving to set goals and, um, and, and tie records or even break records, you know? So um, we just want uh, to be a consistent team and enjoy every single moment out there. And we love playing with each other and uh, we want to just continue this uh, amazing journey. As you know, Carrie, there were several retirement announcements during the offseason, including seasoned veterans, but also some younger curlers who would have otherwise still had many prime seasons left. As a fellow competitor, did that surprise you at all to see players like Olympic gold medalist Eve Muirhead retire? And is it a concern to see elite players still in the prime of their careers stepping away from the sport? Well, it's definitely, it takes a toll on you, um, especially for a lot of the Europeans. Like, that was their job. That's all they did. Um, they probably want to look at potentially starting families and things like that, and that's hard to do when you're always traveling overseas. So um, I could see why um, even Vicky decided to end their career on a high note. They're um, Olympic gold medalists, so that's uh, an achievement that they've been working extremely hard for for but I believe she said something like 20 years or something like that. So that's a, that's a long time to, uh, to give, dedicate um, that much time to the sport. And, um, and yeah, it's, uh, it's crazy to see, but um, it's, um, it's a thing that happens. And, and for us in Canada, we, uh, we retire maybe at a later age because of, uh, um, a lot of our, uh, events are here in Canada. So we don't have to always travel overseas. Carrie, the first time that you and I chatted was some seven years ago, and it was in an up-and-down season for you and your then-teammates. There was a spell that season when your team played in four straight bond spiels where you failed to qualify, and if memory serves, you only won one game in those four events. You've come a long way since then, and I was wondering if you could perhaps compare the Carrie Anderson of seven years ago with the player and competitor you are now. Yeah, oof, that was that, uh, that was a rough year. I remember that year. <laughs> That's uh, it was very challenging, and it's uh, but that comes with sports. Um, it's just uh, it happens. Uh, you get in laws, and um, it's a grind to try and get out of them. But once you get out of them and um, start accomplishing all those goals that you have set for yourself, it's um, it feels pretty amazing because. Uh, it's not easy being an athlete and uh, it takes a toll on you mentally. I've worked a lot with a sports psychologist on uh, these last four years and uh, that's definitely uh, helped my mental part of the game. And um, 
once you start winning those big games and it just comes natural and you start relaxing a bit more and not putting so much pressure on yourself. So I think that is something that um, I've learned along the way and um, I've just, um, just become more light out there and just not uh, put so much pressure on myself. Just be comfortable, have some laughs and um, I love playing this sport. So um, I don't want to, become discouraged and uh so i just want to keep uh um showing all those young ones out there that you can chase your dreams so uh to keep working hard now carrie i don't think it surprised very many people when your team announced that you were sticking together for this olympic cycle Uh, despite the disappointment at the olympic trials there is no reason to split up a team that's won three straight scotty's titles that said i was wondering if you could walk me through the process of deciding to stick together yeah, after winning the Scotties, we knew right away that we were all going to stay together. Um, it's just uh, we all love playing together, and um, it hasn't been easy. Um, there's been a lot of um, ups and downs, and uh, but uh, we worked hard um, to become a, a solid, solid team and uh, worked hard on everything. So, um, yeah, we just uh, decided, hey, let's let's go for another four years. Everyone was on board. Hey, Carrie, earlier this summer, uh, your team was selected to represent Canada at the first ever Pan-Continental Championships in Calgary this season. Tell me about getting the chance to wear the Maple Leaf at an international competition once again. It's an absolute honor when you get chosen to wear the Maple Leaf, and uh, it's it never gets old, so that's for sure. And um, we are super excited for this event, um, the first ever uh, Pan-Continental, so... Um, we are definitely looking forward to that, and we're going to get in a lot of practice before, and uh, can't wait to step on the ice and put on that maple leaf again. Um, I just love that feeling. Now, the Pan-Continental Championships are, of course, a welcome addition to your schedule this season. Speaking of schedules, what does that look like for the reigning Scotties champions this season? Well, we actually start off our uh, season um, in uh, Morris um, in a couple weeks, September long weekend, and uh then um, we go to the points bet uh, in Fredericton. Uh, and then we'll just basically play the, the rest of the slams. And um, I got a few uh, mixed doubles events that I'll be playing in as well. And finally, Carrie, I want to touch on something that we usually do not discuss much in public in the curling community, and that is sponsorship. In most countries, a team winning three straight national championships in a sport that is very popular in their home country would have little difficulty in attracting sponsors. I was just wondering what it's been like for your team over the past couple of years, especially since most of your championship reign has occurred while the country, and the world for that matter, was dealing with a global pandemic which impacted companies big and small. Um, it's uh, still been challenging for us. <laughs> it's crazy to say, um, but uh, we do have some amazing sponsors that have come on board, and we are so grateful for their support and uh, helping us uh, chase our dreams. And um, we couldn't thank them enough. Um, but yeah, we're we're always looking for for new sponsors. <laughs> My final guest for part one of this season preview is four-time world and four-time bar champion Glenn Howard, who joined me to discuss the sport we both love, what he believes needs to happen to help grow the sport of curling, and we also talk about the injury that might keep him out for the early part of the 2022-2023 season. Glenn, one of the bigger stories of this past offseason in curling was the retirement of Eve Muirhead at age 31 and just a few short months after winning an Olympic gold medal. Now, you coached Eve not in this past cycle, but the one previous to that. And uh, I was just wondering if you were surprised by her decision to retire in the prime of her career. Well, obviously, Evie's, uh, Eve's a good friend of mine. I had, uh, I've, I've known her for years and years and obviously had got to know her better with, with she and her teammates for three years, so basically 16 to 18, when we, uh, you know, we culminated at the Pyeongchang uh, Olympics. Eve's incredible. Like, uh, she's obviously a phenomenal athlete, uh, loves curling, super competitive. Everything she picks up, uh, she does very well. Uh, like she's an accomplished golfer. She's an accomplished bagpiper. Uh, and as you know, an accomplished curler, that's just the three of the ones I know. Um, I'll be honest with you. I was, I was surprised, um, to see that Evie packed it in. Um, you know, there's the old adage, you know, it's nice to to finish on top, but she's only 32 years old. Um, now she has gone through some, some severe physical, she had some, some serious hip issues 
um, over the years. She had hip surgery. She's recovering. I don't, I think she's, I kind of think she's in a little bit of pain every time she curls. Uh, she's very reserved about that. She doesn't let, let you know that she is, but you can kind of tell sometimes the way she slides. I think it was getting better all the time. Maybe, maybe I haven't talked to her per se, but uh, maybe she's just gone to the point where uh, I just don't want to maybe have to go through so much training to get ready for curling and, and, uh, and to hang up the shoes. But again, very, very surprised that, that uh, Evie uh, hung it up. I'm not convinced it's going to be for, for good. Um, I do think um, with all the notoriety that she's had in her career and obviously having a gold medal around her neck. Uh, I think there's a lot of eyes on Eve in your head right now. And I think there's all kinds of opportunity outside of curling that are going to fall in her lap. And I kind of knowing Eve, I kind of think she's got something in the works now, but I, I honestly don't know. Uh, that would tell me like, I, to me knowing Eve, I would think she has something in the works to pack it in. Uh, and, and I follow her obviously on Instagram and Twitter and she's been everywhere. She's been, you know, audiences with the, with the queen. She's been to sporting events. She was commentating on golf, uh, the Scottish open and the British open. Uh, like she was, she's been all over the planet, uh, mostly all over, uh, uh, great Britain. And I think, um, I kind of feel that, that she's got something in the works, uh, and maybe, uh, who knows, maybe she'll find that this is, this is something she's really passionate about outside of curling. And, uh, and and go on from there. I, but again, at 32 years old, I'm still a little bit surprised that she packed it. I did not see this coming at all um, because she's so competitive and she loves it so much. But uh, time will tell. I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't put the nail in the coffin there that uh, that's the end of her curling career. So, Glenn, as our, uh, as our listeners will remember, uh, you coached Team Muirhead uh, not in this past cycle, but in the lead-up to and at the 2018 Olympics in Pyeongchang. And I'm wondering if you could uh, speak, obviously, because you did that, let me backtrack just for a second here. You obviously know uh, the workings of British curling. So I'm just wondering if I could get your thoughts on the approach that uh, David Murdoch and British curling used to select their women's team that would represent Great Britain last season uh, or Scotland last season at the Europeans and then Great Britain at the last chance qualifier for the Olympics and then at the Olympic Games because they did something that most countries wouldn't typically do. They picked eight or nine players, I believe it was, and from there had different lineups, played different events to start last season. And I think it's fair to say that everybody thought Eve Muirhead would be on the final version of that team. But all of the other players, the three other players on the team were kind of up in the air until the final decision was made as to who would represent Great Britain at the Europeans. So I'm just wondering if you could share your thoughts on on doing that a rotational basis for a team especially in the last year of a cycle yeah i uh again that's not that wasn't a formula i would ever think to do i just I, maybe because i am too old school and i just wouldn't we were never brought up that way we we're never brought up to we were brought up to you you, you find your your best curlers locally within the rules within residency rules and you go and try and win and there was never the option of of having 15 different guys or girls to try and try out for a team and we, the, the formula's never been used, right? It's never been used, and I, I'm still not sure that's the, the best way. I kind of, I almost kind of feel, I would, don't use the word, lack of a better word, I'm coming up with desperate. I don't think it was going well uh, leading up to the Olympics, like five, six months prior, and I think uh, British curling decided that uh, we're going to do something different. We're going to, we're going to, maybe try and dangle a carrot to all these players and maybe somehow it'll, it'll morph into uh, uh, maybe better training or better uh uh, a desire to win, or I'm not sure what the real reason was. And maybe, maybe it forced the hand of the curlers as opposed to getting complacent. I'm throwing this out here. Um, and again, when it, when it first, I remember talking to the girls about it and they weren't sure they weren't sure. God, is this the right thing to do? But this is what they've decided. And clearly it worked. Um, you know, it, it goes against all the, all the sort of the, the hidden rules of curling where you need like team dynamics is massive in this game. Um, it's getting to be, less and less of an issue, I think, as, as I see some of these teams go forward. But uh, I still think team dynamics is massive. And as a coach, I'm a big believer in it. And to, how do you get a good team dynamics if you put, to te- put together a, a team, a lineup, a month or two before a huge competition or even Olympics? And um, I, it worked for them. Like, it clear, maybe it's a carefree, uh, free-rolling sort of uh, uh, mentality when you when you get together like that. Ah, we've got nothing to lose because we're just slapping this team together. And, and maybe that might've been part of the reason uh, that they gelled. You could tell they were having a good time though. I, I, I watched them closely and they were, there was no stress. They were kind of, again, free rolling is almost what I think. That, and, and I, I almost think that it, 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 they got to a point where I don't think they thought they were going to win. I think that deep down they believe they could, 
But when you put a lineup together and you've hardly got any experience together, it, it didn't make any sense at all. So it went against all the rules of, of, of forming a good team in curling. And, uh, but it worked. And then who knows? Maybe, maybe this is the new thing in, uh, in curling in, in the world. They're going to just make, do it like a tryout thing. And as you know, a lot of sports, most sports do that. You know, you want to you want to uh, you want to join Team Canada. There's tryouts. There's this sort of thing, Team Canada hockey or something like that. You don't just hand pick 10, 12, 15 guys and, and away you go. So maybe this is something that's going to be uh, brought on in the future. And, and uh, it'll be interesting. Here's the thing. It'll be interesting to see if British curling continues to do it. If they don't continue to do it, that tells me they kind of did a one-off and they got lucky. Now, Glenn, in addition to Eve Muirhead, uh, we've seen a handful of other curlers uh, at the elite level retire or step away from the sport for the time being over the past several months. Players such as Elena Stern of Switzerland, Joanne Courtney, of course, Brad Jacobs, and others. Although some of them will continue to play in mixed doubles, they've stepped away from uh, men's or women's. Uh, are you concerned that we might be at a crossroads in the sport of curling where we might continue to see younger elite athletes retire from the sport because the demands of playing at the elite level outweigh the benefits? A hundred percent, yes. Um, I'm, I'm, to answer the first part of it is I'm, I'm super concerned about these young athletes, young curlers packing it in um, and you know, so much, so much talent, so many talents that are, are packing it in. And it, it, it brings me to the question, like, why? Um, I think you nailed it in the fact that uh, it's, they're putting so much time and effort into a sport. Um, and if you're not winning, it's, they just look back and they go, it's not worth it. They've either got to get an un- unbelievable employer who will let them take off, you know, 20, 30 days a year to curl or they're, they're not employed and they're, they're making, trying to make some monies off of curling, which as you know, it's really hard to do because there's not enough money out there. Uh, and that scares me. And I, and, and me growing, I'm the oldest guy, oldest curler out there. And, and I never had to deal with that. We, we just, we just didn't train as long. We just didn't work as hard at the sport as, as, as the people are today. And I was able to have a full-time job right up till a couple of years ago and, uh, and still kind of stay on top. And that's an anomaly. I think today you just, you, you, there's so much time and effort has to put be put in to try and stay there, get to the top and stay there. And I think a lot of people and the young ones, the young people are going, this isn't worth it. And I do think money is a problem uh, in, in that, like, you, you know, pick a, whatever athlete, if they can't make enough money to, to keep ends meet, and how long are they going to go to think, okay, maybe, maybe I can go into my 40s, and then I'm going to have to pack it in. Well, now what? Well, I'm not ready to retire because I don't have enough income. So, yeah, it's a major crossroads. I, there's this, it's funny you say that you brought up that word because before we got on this uh, interview, I was thinking about some things and, and the word that kept popping into my head was crossroads and curling. And this is just one of the crossroads I think we're going to have to deal with coming, moving forward. Uh, curling is, is, it's in a funny spot right now and I'm, I'm kind of concerned about it. Um, this is a big one when you've got um, young, very talented athletes who are so good and they're packing it in. Uh, that's not good. That is not good for this. That doesn't look good. It's not good for the sport. Um, and that's something that needs to be addressed. And, and what the answer is, uh, Frank, I don't know, but I think that is something that needs to be addressed badly. Now, I know that there's a lot of work going on behind the scenes uh, at the elite level to develop a players association in the sport of curling. What are your thoughts, Glenn, on a players association and the role it could play in addressing some of the ongoing issues in the sport? Yeah, it's massive that we have a players association. And, and again, we've Oh, I don't know how many times we've had a version of it, and we've we've attempted to keep it going. And then it, I felt that a lot of uh, a lot of the, a lot of us became so too self serving when we came to the big issues uh, uh, that were addressed with the players' association. It's in the works. It, it's 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 a bit of a snail's pace. Um, it is a must. It is a must. And it's not it's not about you know the players looking to get a ton of stuff out of this. It's about equal representation. It's about being recognized uh, for certain issues, we could be involved with rules. We can be involved with monies and sponsorship, and 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 little minor negotiations can go on. It's not about we're not looking to make a bazillion dollars. We're looking to be a a, a fair, equitable, um, um, you know, monies, purses, for sort of thing at, at at national championships. You know, there's no rhyme or reason why uh, uh, at the Scotties or the Briar that the men and women cannot wear their own sponsorship. It, it's absolutely ludicrous in this day and age that we can't do that. That might enable like, okay, let's just use uh, the young Zacharias team coming out of Manitoba. And if they were allowed to wear uh, uh, Bob's Texaco or whatever the case may be, maybe they can make a few extra dollars to help them get through the rest of the year. Um, you know, obviously they've joined up with Jen now, but it, it it's huge. And, and 
we just don't have that. We, and we need, we need representation on the, um, at the Curling, Curling Canada uh, board. Or we have to be on there, not paid, paid by the association to represent the players that to, because there's so many issues that the Curling Canada just doesn't get. They're just not, they're not, um, they just don't, they say they're for the players, but they're not. Um, and I think there's so many issues that have to be brought forward. Uh, and I think that would really help. I, I think it would help the young players if they could somehow generate income in a different way. That would help them stay in the sport a little longer. Uh, but it's imperative because there's so many things. Our biggest problem, Frank, is is we just haven't been unified. We can't, the players can't seem to get all on the same page about what needs to be done and how to do it. Um, we're getting closer. And I think it's coming soon. Um, I would love to have been done yesterday, but it's not. And uh, uh, there is stuff going on. It's in the works right now, but uh, it is going a lot slower than I'd, I'd like. And I, it is imperative for the future of, of competitive curling in Canada. Not to put you on the spot, Glenn, but could you touch on a couple of things that you believe need to change in the sport at a competitive level if curling is to grow in Canada and other parts of the world and make it feasible for athletes to focus much of their time, energy, and effort on curling at the elite level? Well, two, two crossroads that are jumping out at me are, are gra- first of all, grassroots curling uh, scares the heck out of me because, um, you know, competitive curling is a minute amount of curlers in the country. And grassroots curling, we've got curling clubs closing up every day. And, and that's massive. That, that's something that needs to be addressed, number one. We, we've got to get people on sliders out enjoying themselves at curling clubs. Um, when, when you see, like I can, the GTA, like I just think of how many curling clubs have been closed in the last 20 years is, is gross. Um, it, it's, it's, it's awful. And, and I, you, how often do you hear of a new curling club being built? Well, you never hear one in Canada. You hear lots in the states because they. I feel like they're they're getting it. They they they've, they've got the they've got the model. They're figuring it out that this is a fun sport and get people out and enjoy it. This is something that really needs to be addressed. That's number one, and number two. From a, I think the Briar and the Scotties is broken. Um, it's it's just it's just not there. Curling Canada is trying to they keep to me. They keep putting band aids on the on the solution. You know, they're adding teams and there's no. The provincial and territorial representation is out the window now. It doesn't matter if you're playing for Saskatchewan, uh, none of it, uh, Yukon, Ontario. Nobody really almost cares anymore because the players are from all over the place. Um, that's from a traditional view. But if they – so I, I don't know what the total answer – and we're, we're bums in seats. It, it's half or a third of what we used to have 15, 20 years ago. So there's a problem. This is this is a problem. Like the, the 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 product is as good or well, it's the best it's ever been. So what's going on? We've got a phenomenal product. The curling is amazing, and yet one third or half of the people are going to watch. So that's something they need to address badly because then that generates a ton of revenue. Um, and then you know, and then not much of this revenue is going back to the curlers. So you know, it's huge. It's a, it's a big crossroads. And again, from the Briar perspective and 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 Scotty's. So I'm almost to the point now where I'm thinking it's one of two. You go back to the traditional, you represent your province, you have to live in your province, and you represent it, and that's the way it is. I don't think it'll ever get that because from a competitive perspective, then we are, we are kind of handicapped by who we can curl with. Maybe it's time you blow it up and it's a free-for-all, and, and you can get any curler from anywhere in the country to play. You join a team and away you go problem with that is i think i think our product will get slightly better it's still phenomenal right now but it's slightly better but then you're going to you might lose a lot of participation because you know player b goes i'm never going to beat those guys so i don't want to curl competitive and then so it's it's a it's 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 a tough one and and again it's you know i know a lot of like curling ken is going to look at uh you know how are we going to get the best team possible for our next our next olympic you know quadrennial uh, and and that's that's a tough one. Um, you, I think we still allow players to put their teams together. That seems to be still working. We're still putting great teams going to the Olympics. We're not getting the results we're hoping for, but again, the, the product out there rather than the rest of the world is pretty darn good as well. So uh, I, those two big issues, grassroots and and Briar and Scotty's, I think are broken, and and it's something that needs to really be addressed. And I, I just hope. Problem is, I, I don't I don't know what the answers are, uh, but we've really got to figure it out soon. 
So, Glenn, speaking of crossroads, I was wondering if I could get your thoughts on something I've heard from a lot of young sports fans and a lot of young curlers, younger generation sports fans and curlers over the past several years, and that is that they feel like the sport of curling is geared towards an older population. And I think the argument is twofold. Uh, first and foremost, I don't think curling does a very good job of reaching out to the younger demographics where those younger generations find their information. I mean, gone are the days where teenagers and university students get a lot of their information on Twitter and Facebook. I mean, now the, nowadays they're located or they, they spend most of their time on TikTok, on Instagram and on Twitch. Meanwhile, curling is still kind of in that old, you know, in the old rhythm of spending a lot of time on Twitter and Facebook, which is fine for the typical curling demographic, which tends to be uh, to be a little older, but it does little for us if we're trying to reach a younger demographic. And the other thing that I hear a lot from younger curlers and younger sports fans is they feel like the sport of curling is stuffy, that they do everything to stop athletes from celebrating, from having a good time out on the ice, and from showing emotion, which is something that I think allows a lot of younger people to buy into a sport and to get interested in the sport when they see players showing emotion on TV. Now, I can go back to the 2013 Olympic trials in Winnipeg, I believe, when um, when Brad Jacobs t- took a lot of grief for that now famous come on, come on that he shouted out to the crowd after uh, an excellent shot to beat uh, Kevin Martin in the last game of the round robin, I believe, which gave them a spot in the trials final. He took a lot of grief for that, and I think it's this type of excitement, the type of reaction that would allow a lot of younger people to buy into the sport. So I was wondering if you could share your thoughts on whether, you know, it's time that we kind of perhaps put some of the older traditions aside and start gearing the sport towards a younger demographic so that we could grow the sport and make sure that it can go on for years and years and years as a sport that we have grown to love. I love that. Like I, I'm always been a big believer. And, and this, this is, a, there's another, maybe a little crossroads that we're having is the coaching is phenomenal, but I also think I now that I've coached, I think a lot of coaches, and this is my opinion, are taking it too far with that not emotional. You can't be up. You can't be down. You got to be even killed. Give me a break. I, I just refuse them. Not everybody's built that way. Not everybody. Brad Jacobs is, he, he wears his emotion on his sleeves. When he's pumped like that, he's going to curl better. He is going to curl better. Uh, you see, uh, you know, Brad Gushu is one of the most reserved going ever. But when he makes a big shot, he shows an emotion, not to the Brad Jacobs, but that's awesome. He's just, and, and the crowd and people love, I think the crowd love that. If you're this mundane robot the whole time, not, I don't think that's good for the game. I love the fact, I've been an emotional guy, so obviously I'm on that side as well. I'll, show, I'll tell you when I'm upset and I'll tell you when I'm, I'm happy. And it, a lot of those sports psychs, though, tend to want you to be even keel all the time. And to your point, golfers are like that as well. But and that, but that makes it boring. People don't want to watch boring, mundane sports, I think. I just think if there's more um, uh, animation and there's more uh, uh, emotion out there and people are uh, – even even the negative emotion, bang, slapping brooms, and people get all excited about banging. Well, the, the guy or girl is into it. They're trying to win. They're performing. Give it up. Like You're not out there. So yeah, how do you criticize? They're trying to win. And I think it's awesome. I, I just think that sort of thing. And I, I'm worried, to, to back to that point, is we're going down the path that we can't show emotion now. You're going to get fined if you swear. You're going to get fined if you back bang. Come on. So, Glenn, when we last saw you on TV during the briar, you were on the bench dealing with a bad knee. Can you update the audience on how you're feeling and what the outlook is for this season? So, ironically enough, I've uh, my knee my knee just finally gave out. Um, like at the end of it was pretty much the end of November, the last or the middle of the last slam, uh, obviously got super sore. Uh, was able to get it back into sh- uh, game shape for uh, ready to go for provincials. Or no, it wasn't quite ready to go provincials. Still wasn't great. I actually had it perfect condition. I thought for the players' championship in April, and lo and behold, I got COVID, and for whatever reason. There's no scientific proof, but COVID uh, made my knee 10 times worse. It was so sore. I could barely, I was having trouble walking. There was no way I could curl. Um, that, and then that was the end of the curling. So I went and saw uh, some orthopedic surgeons, and I've actually since then had my knee uh, taken care of. So I've had a, a scope done. I've had a meniscus, a um, uh, little snip off my meniscus. So I had a flap that's been going around in there for 17 years. And then I had a couple of tendon issues that they've cleared up. So that was done about five weeks ago. 
Um, walking around, you wouldn't know I had a, a, a knee surgery at all. It's my recovery's been remarkable. Uh, I haven't I haven't gone into a curling position yet. I'm not sure uh, what that's. My fingers are crossed that everything's going to go. I'm really hoping that my I, I can I can curl in pain. I, I've done that most of my career, but last year it was it was unbearable. It was just too much that I. You know, at the Briar, I was thinking about my knee in the first two seconds of my slide, and it was difficult to play, and I, I didn't curl as well, and I feel like I'm letting down my teammates plus myself. And it got okay at times, but it was it was, it was was sore. Uh, I'm really hoping – but, again, uh, the jury's out on this one, Frank. I, don't, I won't know until I go and try and slide in about in a few weeks. Uh, we're having a later start. We don't uh, – our first event won't be till the near the 22nd, 3rd of, of September, the um, – uh, March, the, the uh, Curling Madness, so it'll be down by the Curling Candace putting on it in Fredericton. That's going to be our first event. I need to get on the ice prior to that. Um, we'll see. I'll see how it goes. I'm hoping that uh, if it takes, if I have to miss a few spiels early, I do. And as long as it gets better and I'm able to curl, but I really won't know until I get out there. Um, I'm doing everything I have. I'm doing all my, uh, my training and exercises to kind of keep it strong, and uh, time will tell. So that, that's, that's, the, uh, that's the hopes. I may... Uh, we may have a couple of guys in the wings to, to, to spare if need be. Uh, I know Adam, Adam Spencer, I've talked to him just to be, and he's ready to go if, if we need him. And even who knows, we might get Wayner off the, off the pine again, but I uh, don't think he, he's going to want to play that much. But uh, So that's where we're at. We're, uh, I'm just hopeful that uh, the knee's going to be better at least you know in, in a few months from now into the season. The first few spiels, if, if I have to miss, I miss, but uh, uh, that's the plan. Glenn, are you concerned that Canada might be getting a little top-heavy at the elite level in curling? There was a time not that long ago where it seemed like the top seven or eight teams in Canada would have been a threat to win nationals and challenge at Worlds. But the group of teams at that level now seems to be decreasing every year. Is that just a sign of the times in your eyes, further proof that other countries are simply catching up? Or should Canadian curling fans be concerned? Yeah, not a concern. I'm not, I, you know, I think I just... You know, I've been around the game longer than anybody, and I just see, you know, uh, when I went to World Championship, uh, you know, I was only concerned about maybe a couple of teams when we went. I went four times, and then there was only, a, you know, when I say concerned, I knew we still had to play really well to win. Today, the field is, is you know, all the, the 10 teams or eight or 10 teams that are there can, can win, can beat you. And, and um, you know, it's, it's that the quality of the product and the rest of the world is, is phenomenal. And to your point, we are way deeper. If we ever had a, 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 a Ryder Cup or a President's Cup, I don't think we'd have any trouble winning because uh, we could go deep into, the, into our, our, our coffers sort of thing. But uh, the top two or three teams in all these countries are phenomenal. And, and they just keep producing phenomenal athletes, and they're just really, really good. Uh, we're our product in Canada is still unbelievable. It, it's as good as it's ever been, probably the best it's ever been. Uh, with all the, I don't, you know, all these lineup changes is 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 I guess it's just becoming that's the way it is now. You do a four year cycle, or a lot of teams don't even make the four year cycle, and they uh, they they look for greener pastures in, in the next four year cycle. And that's this is the biggest change we've ever seen men's or women's curling ever. In, in the history of, of, of curling to see these teams, teams change to your point. We are, I, we will never, I don't think we'll ever have the top six, seven, eight teams in the country, in the world be from Canada anymore. Those days are gone and we just got to believe We just got to deal with it. Uh, the teams just have to try and get as do the best they can. Even opening up, even opening up the country might bring our level slightly higher, but it's pretty hard to do that because you know, you, you bring four four players in from different provinces that you think are the best, say the best four curlers you could ever put together. Well, now they all live in four different provinces. You, you know, the the best teams are getting together. They're living together. They're they're training together. Uh, this is something that, that the other countries are able to do. We aren't uh, just due to uh, due to geographics and the way our, our rules are, so to speak. But uh, I don't. And our product's phenomenal. Our, our our we're good. We're Canada is great. We're just not winning as much as we're used to. It has to end sometime. We can't keep winning everything. And it you could see the slide. You know, ten years ago, fifteen years ago, you just when I say slide, we were still getting better, but the rest of the world was getting a lot better than they were before. And it, it could come down to one game. You know, you you now. Now the way they do the playoffs, you have semifinals. Uh, again, horrible. I, I hate the fact you could go eleven and zero in a twelve-team thing and play a, a six and five team in a sudden death semifinal. I hate it. Unacceptable. You come off a little bit. They have the game of life. Now you're playing for a bronze medal. Like it's just that's. But this is the way it is. Um, again, where a players' association. I'm digressing a bit. A players' association could address these issues. 
Um, but I no back to it. I think our product in Canada is phenomenal. There's no reason to worry about it. It's just, and you know, to say that we didn't send the right teams to the last three or four Olympics is ludicrous. They were the best teams that we had at the time. They were phenomenal teams. We just aren't winning as many gold medals and we just have to deal with it. And finally, Glenn, it seems like every cycle there's a story that dominates the curling world. A few years ago, it was the broom controversy, and obviously the last cycle was dominated by the COVID-19 pandemic. Not that you have a crystal ball or anything, but is there one topic or one issue that you think might dominate the sport over the next few seasons? Uh, It's a good question. I think the the early year or two is going to be the dynamics of the new lineups. Um, you know, there's uh, both men and women, there's so many changes, so many bizarre ones where, uh, you know, I, I didn't see a, quite a few of these coming. I, I knew there'd be changes, but not quite the personnel changes. That's going to be the first, uh, the first thing to look at. And obviously the, this year is kind of a, the first, almost the first two years are like nothing years. I think when it comes to a quadrennial, you get more serious in the last couple of years, uh, leading up to an Olympics. Uh, there will be all these teams have changed will not all be together four years from now. I can guarantee you that it just doesn't happen. Uh, so I think that's going to be the first storyline is the, you know, how, uh, you know, how's Rachel going to do with, with Tracy and, and co uh, how's Botcher going to do with the new guys? How's uh, Cooey going to do with his new guys? And they're all over the map. I'm Mike McEwen out of Ontario. There's so many story. I think that's going to be the focus to start. And then I think it's going to be, there's still going to be some more rule changes. I, I think are going to happen in the next four years. I'll be shocked if we don't go back to eight ends. Uh, I think that's going to be something that's going to happen. Um, I also think, you know, they're, you know, they're making these tiebreaker things are gone. There seems to be a lot of rule changes quickly. I think there's going to be some more like that as well. I don't know whether they're going to be for the better. I'm not sure, but uh, hopefully they are. And again, hopefully there'll be a consensus of, of opinion out there that uh, allows them to make rash decisions. Cause I think a couple of, they've had a couple of knee jerk reaction decisions to rules, which were been awful. And there's been such a hoopla that uh, I think uh, a backlash that they've had to rescind a couple, thank God. Uh, but yeah, I think number one will be the teams, how they make out. Number two, there will be more rule changes. That's all I can think of right now. And that does it for part one of the 2022-2023 From the Hack season preview. A big thank you to David Murdoch, Kerry Anderson, and Glenn Howard. Join me next week for part two of our season preview when we chat with Mackenzie Zacharias, Mike Harris, and Caitlin Laws. Also, don't forget to check out our partners and friends in the Curling Podcast Network, the Two Girls in the Game podcast, and the Curling Legends podcast. I'm Frank Rock, and you're listening to the From the Hack Curling Podcast, part of the Curling News and Sports Illustrated Partnership.